Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Joanna Rowell, and I'd like to start the show today by sitting back and listening to the enchanting call of the coyote. familiar sound to those who live in, say, Phoenix, Arizona, or Los Angeles, California. But for those of us living in big cities in the Midwest or the East Coast, like Chicago or Washington, D.C., the cry of the coyote seems kind of alien, and coyotes themselves seem like rather exotic creatures. But over the past 20 years or so, these ghosts of the plains have been moving into some of the most urban areas in the eastern and midwestern United States. Recently, I think I actually saw one near where I work in Hyde Park, Chicago, stealthily crossing the street and disappearing into the University of Chicago's main quad. My interview today is with Dr. Stanley Garrett, who is an associate professor and wildlife extension specialist at Ohio State University. He is the principal investigator of the Cook County Coyote Project, which was initiated 12 years ago with the aim of better understanding the biology of urban coyotes living in Illinois. It turns out that these street-savvy, Chicago-dwelling tricksters can teach us a lot about coyote biology. So let's start by talking about the geographical distribution of coyotes in North America. Well, it turns out that they live everywhere. In fact, ever since Europeans first arrived in North America, coyotes have been expanding their territory. In pre-European times, coyotes were restricted to the desert and prairies of Mexico and central United States. Today they live across all of Mexico, the United States, and even most of Canada. I asked Dr. Garrett, why did this territory expansion occur? Well, our best guess is that um, the, it occurred largely as a result of two things. So uh, one of them was that we um, opened up uh, large parts of especially the eastern forest. Um, mm -hmm. So every, every place basically east of the Mississippi uh, which had been heavily forested, we opened up uh, for agricultural reasons primarily, uh, which provided a better, uh, I guess, more typical habitat for the for the coyotes. And then at the same time that we were removing forest, uh, we were also removing wolves. And uh, it turns out that wolves are the only animals that are able to actually control um, coyote numbers. And so um, once you remove their, their primary either predator or competitor at the same time that you're providing better habitat, those two things kind of converge to allow coyotes to greatly expand their numbers. Dr. Garrett mentioned the coyote population may have expanded as the wolf population depleted. The wolf population has declined primarily due to human activity. We hunt them and we take over their habitat. But coyotes have been hunted just as much as wolves, and yet there are more of them than ever. I asked Dr. Garrett why it is that the coyotes thrive under these conditions. Right. Well, I think that's one of the, the most, uh, you know, one of the more amazing um, stories, wildlife stories anyway, um, is that we have um, persecuted or taken um, more coyotes than, than any other mammalian predator by far. Um, and way more than wolves, and yet we were able to exterminate wolves in most of their um, range, whereas, you're right, um, coyotes not only can um, sustain themselves through that, that uh, removal, but they can actually um, thrive under that. And 
Um, you know, we're still trying to understand exactly how they do that thing, but some of the um, theories are that um, they are, um, as a, uh, a medium-sized um, canid uh, or, a, you know, a, a dog-related mm-hmm. um, uh, animal, um, because they're medium-sized, that means that they can easily um, shift from different um, dietary items, so they're not required to uh, take large prey, whereas wolves uh, energetically have to kill larger prey, at least to a certain extent, where they won't be able to satisfy their energetic requirements. So coyotes can, can shift between um, hunting the, the smallest prey, even grasshoppers, um, up to um, uh, killing deer uh, when they want to. And in fact, in some cases, they may actually be car- killing um, caribou and, and moose um, when the conditions are, are just right. So that gives them uh, an incredible amount of flexibility in terms of their diet. And then as far as their response to our removal, it turns out that um, when we remove coyotes from an area, then they can respond to that by um, increasing their litter sizes. In fact, that it can more than double their litter size when their densities um, are decreased. And then also um, the young females would, that would normally be um, delaying their maturity, their sexual maturity, uh, for later years. If, they're, again, their, their densities are decreased, then um, those young females will actually become uh, sexually mature right away. And uh, so then what you have is you have larger litters and you have more females reproducing, all in response to the removal of coyotes. So Dr. Garrett just told us that coyotes succeed in part because when they are hunted and their population drops, they produce more offspring. But coyotes have another trick. They are incredibly intelligent. In fact, not only do um, coyotes themselves learn, say, for example, what a trap is, um, but that information um, gets relayed to other members within their, their social group or their pack. So uh, they have this ability, again, to learn on the fly. And uh, a lot of us have argued that they're probably more adept at that than, for example, wolves, because wolves are a top predator. They don't have any predators themselves. And so the the need to be able to learn and adjust so quickly isn't quite as great for a top-level predator than it is for one of those medium-sized ones. Coyotes have been living in urban environments like Los Angeles and Phoenix for quite some time. Although when it comes to Midwestern cities like Chicago, they only moved in recently. Dr. Garrett explained to me how this occurred. Well, in some urban environments, they were always there. So if you go out west to mm-hmm. Los Angeles and some of the, uh, the cities in Arizona, it seems like they're... They were always there, and if you think about how those cities were developed, they have large canyons and large open spaces um, that course through their urban matrix, and so that provided um, habitat for coyotes that that never got developed, whereas in the Midwest, it's quite a bit different the way that we develop our cities, where it's more complete, and you're basically converting either prairie or or, um, agricultural fields to to subdivisions. Um, So... Uh, in the Midwest, and especially in the eastern part of the U.S., it's a more recent phenomenon to have coyotes moving into the city, and it's most of them 
really started to see a difference in the last 20 years. So, mm-hmm. for example, Chicago, it was really in the beginning of the 1990s that, that coyotes became more um, apparent, I guess, and started showing up in, in parts of the metropolitan area that they had never been seen before. Not only do coyotes live in parks and suburbs, but amazingly, they even populate the densest parts of the city. The way it, it, it looks is that when they first began moving into the Chicago metropolitan area, uh, the first places to get colonized were those large um, natural parks or forest reserves. Mm-hmm. And that really allowed them to establish a foothold um, in the, the urban area. Once they became established in those areas, then, uh, they increased in number. Um, they have a, a territorial type of social system, so that what that means is that um, animals that are born and raised with their with their parents eventually have to leave and have to set up their own territories. And as the prime habitat becomes filled up, then successive generations have to basically learn how to exploit the less desirable habitat. Well, that pushed these individuals into the more developed parts of the landscape. And to everyone's surprise, what we found is that they can um, live in the most heavily developed areas and they can raise young and they can maintain territories and find food, um, even in the loop, even in the most heavily um, developed or urbanized uh, landscapes in North America. There are many other creatures that populate the urban landscape. There are rodents, like rats and mice. There are Canadian geese and white-tailed deer with their accompanying deer ticks. These creatures, when their populations are unchecked, can cause a lot of problems in the city. Because of this, it's actually beneficial to have a carnivore like a coyote around. So some of the the things that we've discovered um, through the years are that uh, they can minimize some of the other wildlife species that we run into conflict with. So um, their primary diet in the urban area um, still remains um, rodents, Mm -hmm. Uh, so mice and rats, which, again, create problems for us, not only in terms of becoming a a blight on our landscapes, but they also carry many diseases that can be transmitted to people. So coyotes reduce their numbers and actually increase the diversity of small mammals um, so that helps biologically as well as it helps our human health. Um, they also are a major predator on rabbits, which become quite abundant in the suburb- suburbs. And surprisingly, um, they become quite abundant even in downtown Chicago. So they do help with, with rabbits, which, of course, uh, consume a lot of our ornamental um, plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and Canada geese is something that we discovered that um, had not been um, observed before, but um, Canada geese also become um, totally dependent on urban areas, so they quit migrating and and become basically urban residents year-round. Mm-hmm. And as their numbers increase, in fact, uh, the estimates are over 100,000 birds annually in the Chicago area, they become um, a pest in some cases um, or, again, uh, become a, a health issue with uh, their droppings. So it turns out that coyotes are the number one predator on their nests. And in fact, the, uh, they definitely had a, or have an impact on the population growth of the goose population in the Chicago region. So they're, they're doing things like that. Um, can, uh, white-tailed deer, which is uh, actually the most dangerous 
animal in um, in Illinois, at least through their uh, uh, vehicle deer collisions. So more people are injured, and unfortunately, some people actually die from um, hitting deer on the roads. Well, it turns out that um, coyotes are the number one predator on their deer on uh, their fawns, which um, slows the population growth of the the urban deer population. So they're they're acting like a predator to our benefit um, in many cases, um, and those are just the ones that we know about. Um, unfortunately, it's very rare to get any kind of funding to study the positive aspects of coyotes. Hmm. Almost all funding for research focuses on the negative aspects of, of coyotes. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that it's just human nature to focus on the things that are um, creating a, a complication for our lives. Hmm. So when uh, people are losing uh, either livestock or losing pets or something like that, obviously that's the first thing they want to um, control or they want to, to take care of. The other things, such as the positive aspects or the ecological aspects of why you know these animals are are beneficial, are less obvious, and so it's harder to justify you know spending research dollars on those types of questions. And wolves and, and coyotes and carnivores are we're afraid of them, and they tend to be kind of vilified, don't you think? Like the yes, big bad wolf. Uh, absolutely, no, no, there's no question, especially. If, for some reason, um, again, that, that canid family, the wolves especially, and, and coyotes to a lesser extent, uh, they definitely um, elicit really strong responses in people. Usually it's negative. In some cases it's, it's positive. But um, where exactly that comes from and why we have such strong negative emotions about uh, those animals, uh, we don't really know. But the, it certainly exists. Coyotes are very social animals, and the coyote pack has a very well-defined social structure. Dr. Garrett explained how the coyote family works, and it turns out that when times are good, they're not lacking in babysitters. So the, the basic unit of the, the, the coyote um, social structure is the alpha pair, so that would be the adult male and the adult female that are the dominant animals of that group. And they're the only ones that do the breeding. So uh, they um, mate, and then they produce offspring. And then um, if the conditions are right, such as if you don't have you know, hunting and trapping going on, then, um, then that group will also include um, subordinates of both sexes. Um, so both uh, males and females that are usually younger than the alpha pair, and they are not sexually mature yet. And uh, it turns out um, one of the things that we've been able to do is test this genetically, and we have found that basically you're talking about um, all of those subordinates are their offspring from previous years. Mm. And so those offspring mm. uh, or those subordinate animals will help the alpha pair raise the next generation or the next litter. So um, that's your basic unit, and typically um, the group sizes will range anywhere from just that alpha pair and their pups to maybe um, five to six adults plus the uh, the litter of the year. So um, and it'll range depending on food supply. In fact, they're very sensitive to um, the amount of food or the, the amount of prey base within their territories because their territory size really doesn't fluctuate at all from season to season. It stays very stable, 
what will fluctuate will be the number of animals that are allowed to live in the territory. So when food is good, um, the pack size will increase, but when uh, food is not so uh, abundant, then uh, the number of animals will decrease to just the alpha pair and their pups. Despite that the alpha pair and their older offspring all pitch in, raising a young carnivore is not a simple task. They must be sheltered and fed, and they must be taught to hunt in their environment. I found it really hard to imagine a family of coyotes raising their young in downtown Chicago where the human population is so dense. But according to Dr. Garrett, they're able to do so. They breed, they're what we call a seasonal breeder. Mm -hmm. uh, they only breed once during the year, and that's usually during February is when they mate, and then um, two months later, which would be in April, is when they, they uh, have their young. And then um, uh, where they do this is they try to find um, the location in their territory that's most removed from human activity, if, mm -hmm. if they can find something like that. Um, and even in the city, even in the downtown area, there are still little nooks and crannies that uh, are have restricted access to people that provide a little bit of cover, um, and they are very good at finding these little these little cracks or, or little crevices in that urban matrix and uh, trying to you know raise a litter there. Now, how successful they are in the most urbanized parts, we we still don't have a good handle on that, but we do know that they that they attempt to raise their litters, and to some um, extent they are successful because there are stable packs in, in downtown Chicago. One coyote that the Cook County Coyote Project has gotten to know in detail was described by Dr. Garrett as the most urbanized coyote in the county. She's known as the Lincoln Park Zoo Coyote, and it seems clear that she is incredibly intelligent. Right, the Lincoln Park Zoo um, coyote was a, a female that we caught in 2009 at the corner of uh, the Lincoln Park area, mm -hmm. and we were fortunate enough to be able to put a, what we call a GPS collar on her, which allows us to monitor her movements by satellite, so we don't have to do it physically, and uh, she had a territory that included not only Lincoln Park, but ran all the way down to Grant Park, and in fact, even farther south toward um, Soldier Field. So um, her territory incorporated or included the Loop, as well as other parts of the downtown area. And she would uh, make regular movements um, through, again, the, the um, heavily, heavily developed areas um, at night. So she was an exclusively nocturnal animal, which is what most um, coyotes do um, when they are um, living among, uh, again, a lot of people. And uh, she had uh, a tremendous range of, of diets. So again, she was eating a lot of rodents and rabbits, but then she would also take um, any kind of um, garbage she could find as well, especially uh, fast food um, type stuff. And uh, she's still, to our knowledge, so she, we monitored her for um, about two years, and then um, her collar dropped off, which it's designed to do. Um, but fortunately, um, we, we have ear tags you know, placed in her ears that are pretty obvious. And uh, she is still showing up in uh, security cameras as well as other cameras that people have set up in different parks or just 
people taking pictures of her in general. Um, mm. In fact, I, I just had a, a picture emailed to me um, two days ago uh, by a resident that um, had a picture that, that saw her um, crossing the street, and you could tell that it was her and that she had she definitely had young this year, so she was lactating. Um, so she's been able to maintain that area, which I consider her to be the most urbanized coyote in North America because there's um, close to a million people that live in her territory. Um, and she crosses hundreds of roads every night. Some of these roads are like um, uh, Lakeshore Drive or Michigan Avenue, and she hasn't been hit by a car to our knowledge. That's amazing. Um, she's still, yeah, she's still healthy. We watched her across roads, and she understands traffic patterns, and she understands how intersections work. So uh, that helps uh, helps her as far as surviving, having to cross these roads. Um, and she avoids um, people and their pets, so there's been no conflicts um, with her, at least as far as her being aggressive. She's, she's not aggressive at all, and that's been what's uh, kept her alive. As Dr. Garrett mentioned, part of the reason that coyotes are so successful in the urban environment is that, unlike domesticated dogs, they are able to understand traffic. Dr. Garrett explained this remarkable cognitive feat in some detail. The coyotes that we've been able to monitor, um, and we've been able to demonstrate this both uh, from our visual observations of just watching them cross roads as well as statistically being able to uh, show that um, there's that basically there's no change in their survival rate regardless of where their territory is located. So uh, it could be an animal that has to cross hundreds of roads each night or a coyote that crosses two roads um, a week. They have the same probability of getting hit by a car, which is low for both of them. And that's because they can adjust and they learn um, these traffic patterns. And, and so they're they're very adept at that, and if they weren't able to do that, then they wouldn't be as successful as they are in, in the Chicago area. In fact, a lot of times uh, we watch them, um, and, and in fact, many people can see this if, on their uh, morning commutes to work. If you just look from, if you just move your vision from the cars in front of you to the side, you'll be surprised how often you'll you'll see a coyote actually just sitting um, near the road, just watching the traffic. <laughs> and they just watch, and they just uh, learn how it works. Overall, it seems evident that coyotes are here to stay. And there are quite a few benefits to having them as neighbors. Nevertheless, they are wild animals and should be treated accordingly. I asked Dr. Gert whether he had any tips to help foster peaceful coexistence between urban humans and coyotes. Well, the biggest tip is uh, we have to try and, and minimize how much we feed them, mm -hmm. either on purpose or inadvertently. That seems to be one of the biggest causes of conflict um, between coyotes and people. Um, so uh, managing our garbage so that coyotes don't associate our yards with food, uh, trying to remove or reduce the amount of wildlife feeding uh, that some residents do, um, such as putting out food either specifically for coyotes um, or sometimes for other species like deer or raccoons that coyotes will eventually um, take advantage of. Um, so they, they shouldn't view our yards as, as sources of food. They shouldn't view us as sources of food, so certainly we shouldn't be trying to feed them mm -hmm. uh, from the hand either. Um, unfortunately, we, we see 
cases of both of those going on. Um, so that's that's the big thing. Uh, and then uh, the other kind of conflict that we have are their attacks on on pets. And so um, in some cases it's fairly easily resolved. So for cats, it's keeping them indoors or at least uh, keeping them close by if they go out. Uh, for dogs, it's walking them on a leash. Um, and if they're out in the yard, try to uh, minimize the time that they are out in the yard at night by themselves um, or at least turn on lights and, and, and turn on a radio or something to make some noise when you let the dog out at night and then just keeping an eye on things. Um, if you don't see coyotes around, then there, you probably don't have a lot to worry about. But if you do know that there's coyotes nearby, maybe you've seen them or heard them, then just keeping a close eye on, on the dog and um, especially not letting them run off leash and, and forest preserves and especially not doing that during um, this time of year or a little bit earlier in the year, such as April or May, when they have pups on the ground. Those are some important steps we can take to minimize conflict. Finally, I couldn't contain my curiosity over my coyote, the one I saw in Hyde Park, Chicago a few months ago. I decided to ask Dr. Garrett if he thought I had actually seen one. Oh, it's very likely. Um, <laughs> there's a there's a pack that lives, um, well, I'm sure part of the campus is included in their territory. But uh, we've had animals radio collared that have, you, have gone through uh, that campus on a regular basis. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Much to the relief of our supercomputer, Gracotron 5000, previously known as Deep Blue, Dr. Garrett decided to stick around to play our game. The Gracotron 5000 decided to ask him whether or not one of the following five people were either an alpha coyote or a lone nuisance coyote. Let's see what he had to say. The first person is golfer Tiger Woods. Um, I think that that is a, an alpha um, mm -hmm. uh, coyote for sure. And just because of his competitiveness and obviously he's fairly dominant among his peers. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty typical of an alpha animal. Okay. And what about um, the actor Charlie Sheen? Charlie Sheen, definitely a solitary transient that occasionally um, crosses over to the dark side. <laughs> okay, here's a maybe a tricky one. The fictional character Sherlock Holmes. Mm, Sherlock Holmes. Um, that uh, probably again an, an alpha, but for different reasons. Um, very cunning, um, very intelligent, and. Uh, Probably a, a good example for the other pack mates to follow. Um, <laughs> I think uh, he was also kind of a teacher for Watson. Um, so uh, I think that would be probably the closest um, coyote I can think of for him. Mm. Okay, and uh, politician Newt Gingrich? Newt Gingrich, huh. Um, I could see him actually being both, so he could <laughs> at times be uh, that solitary transient that is a loner and uh, again occasionally steps over into things that finds himself in habitat that he's not familiar with, um, but then he does have an alpha type personality, so sometimes perhaps maybe he doesn't always know that he's in habitat that he's unfamiliar with. <laughs> uh, and finally, uh, President Barack Obama? 
Um, I would say, I guess this is pretty typical of politicians in general, yeah. uh, regardless <laughs> of party, and that is that they both, um, again. So obviously as president, you have to be alpha. Right. I mean, there's no other option available mm-hmm. there. But even then, I'm sure, um, again, because of that political nature, um, there's also that solitary, um, transient aspect um, to the job as well. Mm. So it's kind of a paradox. Mm-hmm. The politician... Or you have to shift back and forth, ah, uh, depending so... on, on what's, yeah, what's in front of you. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. It's a, it's a really exciting project. Um, so thanks again for being on the show. You bet. That's it for the show today. If you're interested in hearing more from us, you can find our website by Googling The Grok Science Show. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, so look for us there. Thanks for listening, and please do tweet or post to us on Facebook or our website. We'd love to hear from you. For The Grok Science Radio Show and Forrest Golden, Elise Kovic, Frank Ling, and Charles Lee, I'm Joanna Rowell. 